Thank you for tuning into The World Game, a World Cup podcast. The podcast that will have everything you need to know about the World Cup. There will be recap episodes throughout the tournament, so you won't miss a storyline. Maybe there was a 90th minute game winning goal. Maybe there was some controversy. Either way, we'll dive right into it. My name is Peter Roman. I've loved football all my life, and thanks for joining me on this journey. Before we get going on today's episode, I just want to once again mention the migrant worker situation in Qatar. Unfortunately, a lot of people lost their lives in the building of the infrastructure for the tournament. It's a horrible human rights tragedy, and my heart goes out to the victims and their families because none of this should have ever happened, and I hate that it did. So, now on to the episode. Today's episode is the quarterfinal preview. I will be breaking down all four quarterfinal games and what to expect, and even a little bit of my own predictions as well. So, we're down to the last eight teams, and then at the very end of this episode, I will quickly go through and explain what winning the World Cup would mean to each individual country and what would, what it would mean to the players and what it would mean to just the history of football I guess so I'll do that at the very end just because now we're down to the last eight teams you can really start to dream about winning the whole thing so we'll start with the Friday games and then go to the Saturday games for the quarterfinals starting with Argentina and Netherlands so Argentina-Netherlands is one of the quarterfinals, and it's the first one we're going to talk about today. This game has a lot of history behind it, and I mentioned that in my recap episode. So let's break down some of that history, shall we? This all goes back to 1978. Now, the 1978 World Cup was the first World Cup that Argentina won, and it's the one that they hosted. Now, this World Cup, let's just say, was very controversial. And one of the main reasons for that is because the situation in Argentina, I don't think, was too favorable. Let's just say it was awful. In Argentina at the time, there was a military dictatorship. And the military dictatorship felt they could use the World Cup to help advance their own causes. And what I mean by that is we've seen this, unfortunately, before, where dictators, when they want... You know, people to get distracted and not think too hard about the horrible things they're doing, they will quite often use sports as a way to rally the country and distract them from the very serious things that they're trying to pass or put forward or implement. And so Argentina 1978 was one of these examples. A couple other examples include the Olympics that were hosted in Germany under Nazi leadership. Hitler you know, obviously he was doing a lot of horrible things. And he didn't want people to, you know, necessarily look into that too much. And he wanted his population to rally under, you know, the German Nazi flag. He wanted people distracted and not thinking about that too much. And sports is one of the ways you can do that. And Hitler was trying to do that. It's obviously horrifying, you know, to think about. But the parallels as far as using sport to distract people and to try and bring people together is something unfortunately dictators do and this was something that happened in Argentina this is also something that you could argue happened in 2018 with Vladimir Putin and the Russia World Cup because Vladimir Putin is obviously a dictator 
and Putin was at the time putting in a lot of laws around, you know, basically not letting gay people live in his country. And he didn't want, you know, gay people in Russia. And a lot of people were mad about that. But of course, there was the 2018 World Cup and there was the 2014 Sochi Olympics. And, you know, those are good ways to distract people and try and make them forget about the real, the real horrifying issues that you're trying to pass. So, yeah, that's um, not a great part of sports history. It's one that's obviously really awful, but it's unfortunately something that's real and it's happened. And unfortunately, it happened very recently in the case of the World Cup. So thanks a lot, FIFA. But anyways, so the 1978 World Cup, like I mentioned, was kind of used by the Argentina military dictatorship as a political tool. And unfortunately for them, you know, they kind of got it to work because, see, this tournament was very controversial because it certainly seemed like there were forces at play that wanted Argentina to win and wanted them to win really badly. So in the 1978 World Cup final, Argentina played Netherlands. And the Netherlands, if you ask any of their players about this game, they would tell you that uh, it was a load of crap because the referee certainly seemed very partial to the Argentina side, to say the least. I'm putting that very lightly, by the way. But, you know, there were questionable decisions throughout the tournament that certainly went in Argentina's favor, and the World Cup final was no different. And Mario Kempes ended up scoring goals, and Argentina won. And so they, you know, won the World Cup, their first ever title. So that's part of the history of these two teams. And then we move a little bit forward to 1998. The 1998 World Cup was held in France, and in the quarterfinals, we had Argentina-Netherlands. This game was tied in the 90th minute when Dennis Bergkamp, and for anyone who's heard the call on this goal, it's unbelievable, it's amazing, in Dutch anyways. The Dutch commentator, let's just say, loses his, abs loses his freaking mind. He just absolutely loses it, but in the best way. Dennis Bergkamp scores one of the best goals in World Cup history in, you know, stoppage time, essentially, to win the game for the Dutch and send them to the semifinals to beat Argentina. So we have the 1978 game, we have the 1998 game, and then we have 2014. In 2014, these two teams faced off in the semifinals. Messi was actually on this team. And the Dutch probably came the closest to winning this game. Arjen Robben had a great chance late in the game. Javier Mascherano made one of the best defensive plays I've ever seen in my life. It was an outstanding slide tackle that he made to prevent Robin from scoring. And then the game went to penalty kicks. Sergio Romero, the Argentina goalkeeper, played hero. And Argentina won, getting to go to the World Cup final in 2014. So there's some history here. They've met other times too, but those are kind of the three notable ones. was the 1978 final, the 1998 World or quarterfinal, and the 2014 semifinal. So what will the 2022 version have to offer? Well, obviously we'll have to wait and see, but it should be a good game. Argentina come into the game, I think, feeling pretty good about themselves generally. They've won their last three games. The, you know, Australia game was a little nervy at the end, but they had good performances against Poland and Mexico. So, you know, for Argentina, I've talked about this a lot. Their biggest thing in this tournament is that they keep, generating chances really well, but they don't finish them that well. For the Dutch, it's the opposite, because they don't generate a lot of chances, but they score a lot of them. They're very clinical, and so that's kind of been their story. For the Netherlands, they're coming off it probably their most impressive victory so far at the tournament, beating the United States 3-1. to 
And so now we have these two historical uh, rivals facing off in the quarters, and it should be really, really good. As far as some of the key players to keep an eye on, for the Netherlands, Memphis Depay, he started against the U.S. I would fully expect him to start again. He scored as well his first goal at the uh, USA game of this World Cup. He came into the tournament a little bit injured, and so, you know, for Memphis Depay, obviously, he's one of their most important attacking players. And then Cody Gakpo has been their surprise young player of the tournament. He's been amazing for them. We'll see if he can keep scoring. He scored in all the group stage games. Did not score against the United States, though. And then, of course, you know, they get a lot of great play from their wing backs because the Netherlands play the back three with um, Van Dyke in the middle. And then they have their wing backs that have been bombing forward. And Dumfries had a tremendous performance against the United States. So we'll see if he can keep that up for the Netherlands. What the other interesting part for them, as far as their lineup goes, is just Louis Van Hall doesn't quite seem to know what his best midfield is. Frankie de Jong has played every game, but the other positions have been rotated a little bit. So it will be interesting to see who he ends up starting in this game against Argentina. On the other side, though, speaking of Argentina, for them, they've basically played the same lineup the last two games in the Poland game and in the Australia game. The only difference being Angel Di Maria. Di Maria suffered an injury, and so it's a question, it's basically a race against the clock on whether or not he'll be fit and whether or not he will be able to play in this game. For Argentina's sake, you know, they certainly hope he will be able to play. Di Maria is one of their big game changers who can turn the game on his head when he needs to. And, you know, Alvarez is kind of a young player, not sure if he's quite the player that you want stepping up in the shoes, like as far as importance to the team if Di Maria is out. Messi obviously will always be important to the team no matter what, but we'll see as far as the attacking play is concerned. But they've pretty much just gone with the same lineup here for a little while now because Molina and Acuna start at fullback for them. Fernandez, DePaul, McAllister play in the midfield, and Rodrigo DePaul hasn't had a great tournament in my opinion, but Fernandez and McAllister to me have been pretty good for Argentina in the midfield as far as their play. And then Romero and Otamendi have been the center back partnership for a while. So we'll be I don't know. I'm excited. This this should be a good game. These are two good teams. My prediction. Well, it's tough. I think it's gonna be close. I think it'll probably go to extra time, but I think I'm just gonna lean slightly in Argentina's favor rather than the Netherlands. But I would not be surprised at all if I was wrong and the Netherlands end up winning this game. So, should be a fun one. Kicks off on Friday. Now on to the second Friday game. We have Brazil and Croatia. Unfortunately, Brazil-Croatia doesn't have the same history that Argentina and Netherlands do. But this should still be a good game. And we have the World Cup runners-up from 2018 facing off against one of the favorites. At least the betting. I believe Brazil is still the betting favorite to win the whole thing. So, Croatia keep finding ways to win and this has been a staple of their team over the last little while where they tend to concede the goal first like they give up the first goal in the game but then they find a way to tie the game and then come back and win it quite often and for Brazil they've been dominant at this tournament their football has been very very fun to watch and their players especially you know Richarlison Vinicius finally got it going in that South Korea game like they're they're feeling themselves, and it is very scary for any team going up against them. So it will be a big challenge for this Croatian team. Fortunately for Croatia, 
they're not afraid of them. They're not afraid of anybody. This team has a lot of veteran experience, and their midfield, obviously, if they're going to win this game, if they're going to win the game, the midfield has to play well. Luka Modric, Brozovic, and Kovacic, they are those three players in the midfield for Croatia, they're the best chance they got to win. And they have to outplay the Brazilian midfield. Brazil's midfield has typically been a 4-2-3-1, so really the guys they have to outplay are Casemiro and Paqueta, who are the more the deep-line playmakers, because then they have Neymar, Rafinha, and Vinicius have tended to play for them to start on the attacking midside, and then they all play behind Richarlison, who's been their striker. So that's kind of the formation that Brazil has set up, is basically just the 4-2-3-1, and so obviously Paqueta and Casemiro will be really important to deal with the Croatian midfield, but of course, that front four, Rafinha, Neymar, Vinicius, and Richarlison, really important for scoring all their goals, and they certainly aren't lacking options off the bench if they need them. And then defensively, Marquinhos and Thiago Silva have been the center-back partnership in Brazil for a while now. They're very experienced, and, you know, Brazil... They haven't really conceded very many goals at this tournament. They've conceded two. One of them was against Cameroon when they were playing their backups, and they conceded one to South Korea when the game was already over. And, of course, Allison in goal, he's one of the best goalies in the world. The fullback position is a little bit of a weakness, so if you're Croatia, maybe that's something you can exploit. I'm looking specifically at Ivan Perisic, who's really, really important for them out on the wing. He will be one they have to rely on because, you know, Kramerich had a good game against Canada, but not a lot outside of that, and they haven't had a lot of great performances attacking-wise from other players. So that will be something to keep an eye on, and of course, their defense, I mean, they're going to be in for it. It's going to be a tough game. Guardiol and Lovren, their center-back partnership, a lot on their plate against this Brazilian team, and Lovakovic, of course, in goal. However, if it goes to penalties, we know Lovakovic can make a bunch of saves like he did against Japan. So... I don't know. Very exciting. A lot to keep an eye on. Brazil come into this game definitely as the heavy favorites. And if you're asking me for my prediction, I would pick Brazil to win this game. But of course, you know, count out Croatia at your own peril. They seem to love and cherish the idea of being an underdog. And they love the idea of being doubted. Because this team, like I said, the most resilient team by far over the last few years as far as you know, they give up the first goal and it doesn't matter. For a lot of teams, when they give up the first goal, they tend to panic. And it's like, oh no, crap, we gave up the first goal. Oh no, what do we do? What do we do? There's no panic. There's no fear. There's no hesitation from this Croatia team. They will keep playing. They will not stop. And this will be a challenge for Brazil. I don't think this is a blowout. It could be, obviously. You know, you never know. But, like, I don't think it'll be a blowout. I think it'll be a cagey, a, a cagey game and a close game, but I think Brazil probably win in the end. So, those are the Friday games. Now on to the Saturday games. Starting with the Portugal and Morocco game. Now, certainly one of these teams is, you know, a little unexpected in this spot, but again, Morocco, they have a chance to make history, and they've already made history making it this far. They've never made it this far before. And they could be the first African team to ever make the semifinals. So, this game is exciting. You know, obviously one team will be heavily favored over the other team. But, the heavily favored team, aka Portugal, they, hmm, let's just put it this way. They have a dilemma on their hands. 
The dilemma is around Cristiano Ronaldo. Ronaldo, of course, is the best Portuguese player of all time. He's their all-time leading goal scorer. He is their captain. He is, you know, he's been the face of their team forever. And he's still a really good player. But I think Portugal might be better without him? Like, genuinely, I, I think they might be better without him. I'm not joking about that. And I say that with a question mark initially because you don't want to have to bench a player of Ronaldo's quality. But if you play the way you did against Switzerland, I think you have to. So Portugal obviously just killed Switzerland. It wasn't even close. And this game, like, I just felt they played really well in this game. For Portugal, the way they lined up without Ronaldo was they had Bruno Fernandes out on the wing. He kind of had a bit of a free roll where Fernandes would tuck in a lot. But it was really good because Fernandes is a tremendous playmaker and he could, you know, kind of connect the lines between midfield and attack. His passing, of course, is always amazing and he can generate a lot of chances. And then Gonzalo Ramos. Ramos was the guy who Fernando Santos, the Portuguese coach, turned to to replace Ronaldo. And he did admirably. He scored a hat-trick for them in this game. And when you score a hat-trick, at least in my opinion, probably shouldn't go back on the bench. Probably not. Anyways. And then Joao Felix is the other starter for them up front who plays a little bit more wide. I guess if you wanted to make an argument of replacing Felix with Ronaldo, I I mean, I wouldn't do it, but like maybe. I just think Felix gives them more versatility. Ronaldo used to be a really great winger, you know, back in his prime, but I think he's really transitioned into more of a striker these days now that, you know, he's 37 years old. But the midfielders that they went with, Otavio, Carvalho, and Bernardo Silva. Bernardo Silva provides a lot of the playmaking for them. Carvalho, really important defensively. And then their defense has pretty much been the same for the last, like, several games. Dallo, Pepe, Diaz, and Guerrero. And that's significant because Joao Cancelo somehow doesn't start for this team, which I think is amazing. But Dallo's been really good at right back for them. Guerrero provides a lot at the left back spot. He's always really good bombing forward. And then Ruben Diaz is one of the best center backs in the world. Pepe, old-timey veteran, but they don't really have a better option outside of him. So, yeah, I think Portugal should go with the same lineup that beat Switzerland. When you win 6-1... Probably, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right, type of thing. So that's how I would expect them to line up against Morocco. For Morocco, obviously, they're going to come out pretty defensive like they were against Spain. For them, again, the right-hand side, I've talked about this before, Hakimi at right back and Ziyech on the wing, those guys, their link-up play is great. Uh, and then Buffal, Buffal, oh, my God, the one movie put on this, oh, my God, that, it was so dirty. He put on such a nasty move on one of the Spanish defenders. It was awesome. Buffal has to start. He's been really good, I think, in this tournament. And then the other guy I want to highlight here in this Moroccan team, Amrabat in the middle. Amrabat, he doesn't, you know, he's not exactly flashy, right? He's not going to grab headlines for his performances. But Amrabat has been quietly maybe their most important player. And he's really, really integral to their solidity, to everything they want to do in the midfield. So for Morocco, Amrabat, really, really important. And he will be called upon, right, to try and help neutralize some of that 
Portuguese attack and generate counters of his own. So something I don't know. It'll be an interesting game. I think this game probably ends up being the lowest lowest scoring of all the games, just because I think Morocco are gonna sit back and defend. Morocco haven't really conceded a lot of goals in this tournament, so it's fair to say that, you know, their defense has been pretty good. It'll be tough for Portugal to break them down. But Portugal have had zero problems scoring in this tournament. That you know, they've had a little trouble on the defensive end, but Portugal have not had any problems scoring. So the key thing here, and I'm very curious to see how this goes, unless it ends up 0-0, Morocco haven't trailed yet at this tournament. And so I wonder how they would respond. Because obviously if Portugal go down, well, they have, you know, countless attacking players they can rely upon to score goals. But for Morocco, they don't have a lot of those go-to players for scoring goals. They have some guys for creation, but not necessarily finishers. So that will be something to keep an eye on if that happens. Of course, if Morocco go up, then they're probably going to get even more defensive, but we'll have to wait and see. History could be made in this game. Very excited to watch. For Portugal, they've never made a World Cup final before. So if they make the semifinals, that will match their greatest appearance at the World Cup. And finally, my prediction. I think Portugal are going to win. I really hope Morocco wins. I will be cheering for Morocco. But I think Portugal's going to win in the end. But again, I hope I'm wrong on this one. Will still be a fun game to watch. Now, on to the final game on Saturday. England versus France. So, this game has a lot of intrigue on it. And it has a lot riding on it, too. Because you have a French team trying to repeat and go back-to-back. They'd be the first team to do it since Brazil in 58 and 62. And England are trying to win the tournament for the first time since 66. They haven't even been to a final since. So a lot on the line in this game. And these are two really good teams. I think this could be the best game of the quarterfinals. You have two countries that know each other really well. You have a ton of world-class players on both sides. And I think you just, you know, you have two teams that really believe if they win this game, they're going to win the whole thing. So I'm excited. It's, it's going to be such a great matchup, England versus France. So how do these two teams line up against each other? Well, for France, they've gone out with a few different lineups. And part of that is because they don't, I don't think they're quite sold on anybody being right back for them. But, you know, they, they're throwing good players in there regardless. But Hugo Lloris, their standout in net. Theo Hernandez, Lucas Hernandez got hurt in the first game of the tournament in the Australia game. Theo Hernandez has stepped in and been great for them at the left-back position. But, of course, the talent for France is in the midfield and the attack. Uh, Chukameni, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry if I butcher that. He plays for Real Madrid. He's a really good player. He's one of the guys, him and Rabio, who are the two more defensive midfielders, they have stepped up in the place of Pogba and Kante. N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba were both hurt before the tournament. Those two were really integral to France winning the World Cup four years ago. They're not here this time. So these two guys have really stepped up in their place. And they've done a great job in 
you know, they can't fully replace what Kante does, but like, you know, the two of them, I think, have done very admirably in those positions. And then up front, they, because they play the 4 2 3 1 mostly, Usman Dembele, Antoine Griezmann, and of course, Kylian Mbappe, the best player in the world. And then Olivier Giroud plays striker for them, but like, I, I mean, Giroud has actually scored in this tournament at least. See, Giroud was funny in 2018 because he started every game for France and had zero shots on target the whole tournament and they won the thing so you know he was he was kind of the the kid in the group assignment that uh, got an a despite you know not really doing anything you can't say that this time he's actually scored for them and he did score against poland as well Giroud has been playing well for them he's not here's my thing with Giroud. He's not a player that's going to dramatically change your fortunes, right? So if, you, if you're expecting Giroud to be the difference for you to win the game, you're, like, you're not going to get it. <laughs> He's not going to be the reason you win a game. But he is a very good complementary player at this point in his career. And he's a guy who can, you know... He's a guy who can score goals, right? And scoring goals is obviously the hardest thing to do in this sport. So that matters. Dembele... Very quick, very rapid, great player. Griezmann continues to be really integral for this French team. And then, of course, Mbappe. He's the star man. I talked about Mbappe a lot in my recap episode for the round of 16. Killing Mbappe, to me, is, has cemented himself finally as the best player in the world. He is leading the, he's leading the tournament in goals. He is leading the tournament, in my opinion, for the best player award. And now he has a chance against England. A lot of players have made famous moments happen against England at World Cups. And Kylian Mbappe is the latest player who has an opportunity to do that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he did. Mbappe's form right now is ridiculous. But excited anyways. For England, obviously, if you're going to contain the French attack, which is really hard, contain him. You've got to find a way to just make sure do not under any circumstances if you're England let Mbappe have space if he ends up in one-on-one situations he will kill you so you have to have to defend him really really badly so let's look at the England lineup who might have to defend Mbappe well defensively Kyle Walker John Stones Harry Maguire Luke Shaw that's pretty much been what they've gone with for the back four Pickford and Nett Pickford tends to play better for England than he does for his club team, but, you know, kind of a good thing for England, I guess. And then the midfield. Now, this is where I worry a little bit. They have Jordan Henderson, who started in the in the round of 16 game against Senegal. They have Declan Rice, and they have Jude Bellingham. Bellingham has been really good in this tournament. He's a young player, but he's, got, he's one guy who's stepped up a lot. Declan Rice, though, I look at him, and that is a weakness for... For England in my opinion that's something that I think France can exploit I don't think Rice is a bad player I just don't think he's played up to the level that I've seen him play at club level and so he's sort of been underwhelming I think a little bit and if I'm France that is a area I can try to exploit is Declan Rice in that midfield because Henderson at this point he with him being a little bit older as well I think there's some potential there for France to dominate that part of the field. But again, they're good players. Like it's it, it'll be a fun battle to watch. I just think France probably have the edge in that part. 
But of course, for England, like with France, their biggest strength comes in their attack. Their front three against Senegal included Saka, Kane, and Foden. And in my opinion, probably need to keep that going. And that's not even including Marcus Rashford, who obviously, you know, he has three goals in this tournament. Marcus Rashford somehow doesn't start for this team, despite the fact that he's their leading scorer in the tournament. And it's just, it tells you the quality of their players. Saka, tremendous tournament. This guy, I, I talked about him and how much I love that he's rebounded since the Euros. He's a very important player for Arsenal at club level. He's a really important player for this England team. Harry Kane. Maybe not as many goals as you were hoping he would have at this point, but he's been more of a creator. He's been more of a guy who's been setting up players for goals. And, you know, sometimes that goes unappreciated, but I try to appreciate those players when I can. And Harry Kane, I think, has played well in this tournament, although obviously you would hope he would score more goals. But, I mean, no better time than the present, right? No better time than against France. And then Phil Foden, he didn't start the first two games, but he did start the last two. And to me, Foden, he's been really good with Manchester City. And I think he's been really good in the two games he's played. And then, of course, you have guys like Rashford you can turn to on the bench. Even a guy like Jack Grealish can make a difference for you off the bench as well. Maybe even a guy like Mason Mount. So England have plenty of options to score goals. And France have plenty of options to score goals. And so that's what, make the, that's what makes this game really fun. I don't think either team is bad on defense. I just think both teams are really stacked in those forward positions. And we've seen this. England scored six on Iran. They scored three on Senegal. And they scored three on Wales. France got four on Australia. They got two on Denmark. I'm not counting the Tunisia game. They didn't play enough of their players. And then they scored another three against Poland. Both of these teams can score and score a lot so it might be a little bit weird to think of England in this position but I think this is probably the highest scoring game of all the quarterfinals and now it comes time for my prediction so I really think either team like I think this is close I think England could absolutely win this game I think France could absolutely win this game but I'm going with the team with the best player. I'm going with France and Kylian Mbappe because I just think the form he's in right now, it's pretty unstoppable. And so I'm going to say France beat England, but of course would not be surprised if the result ended up the other way. And so that brings us to the end of the previews for each of the games. But I want to talk quickly about what it would mean to win the whole thing because now that we're down to the final eight teams, now is the time when you can really start to dream. You can start to dream about what if this team actually wins the World Cup. And so I'm just going to quickly go through each of the teams just for a couple minutes each and just explain what it would mean for them if they won. So we'll start with the Friday games. We'll start with Argentina. So for Argentina, I think more than just for the country, I think Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi... Obviously, the World Cup is the one big trophy that he hasn't won in his career. He's won countless Champions Leagues. He's won Ballon d'Ors. He's won the Olympics. He's won the Copa America, finally. He's won, you know, La Liga how many times, and the Copa del Rey, and the Super Cup. And the World Cup is 
a trophy that he wants to have. Messi has even said before that he would trade like all of his Ballon d'Ors basically for a World Cup win. And, you know, that's how much it means. The World Cup means so much for every single player that wins it and for every country that wins it. And so for Argentina, you know, obviously winning would be great for the country and they would be thrilled to win it. But like more than anything for Lionel Messi, winning the World Cup in some ways would complete his career in a lot of ways. So, you know, obviously a lot riding on that, but I think that's what's kind of at stake for Argentina. Next team is their opponent, the Netherlands. The The Netherlands have never won the World Cup. They are one of the few countries that have made the final several times. They made the final in 1974, and it was Cruyff's team that lost in Beckenbauer's. They made the final in 1978, and I talked about that already. And then they made the final in 2010, and they lost to Spain in extra time, the Andres Iniesta goal. So for the Netherlands, they've been snakebitten in this tournament. They've been one of the best footballing nations ever, but they don't have a World Cup win yet. And that's the thing they're missing. And, you know, could this be the team that finally gets them the World Cup trophy? They've been craving, they've been begging for for decades. Maybe. We'll see. But that's how much it would mean to them. It would mean the absolute world to finally avenge the losses of the great Dutch teams in the past. Next team is Brazil. Brazil have five World Cups. They're the most successful team at this tournament. So for Brazil, you'd think like, well, you know, them winning the World Cup doesn't mean as much as it is to other countries. However, there is a situation going on in Brazil right now with the greatest player in their history, and in my opinion, the greatest player of all time, Pelé. Pelé, according to different reports, apparently he is being hospitalized right now and supposedly has been put on end-of-life care. So obviously my heart goes out to Pele and to his family and his friends. But for this Brazil team, it is certainly motivating in a lot of ways because Pele in Brazil is basically treated like a god because he is their football god. Pele, I mean, the stuff he accomplished in his career is absurd. And I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to get into all of that right now I think that can be saved for potentially a future episode on what Pele meant and what he did and what he accomplished but let's just say for Brazil he's obviously you know their most famous and just biggest person they've ever had as far as like stature is concerned and so for this Brazilian team because Pele has you know he's basically been cheering them on from the hospital bed and, I mean, you have the god of football in your country basically rooting for you to win. And to win before, you know, potentially he might pass away. If, if that isn't motivating, I don't know what is. And so for Brazil, what this World Cup means is win it for him. Win it for Pele. Win it for the king. So that's kind of what it means for them. And then obviously there's a lot, of, you know, for the players themselves. For Neymar, this would you know, put him among the likes of Ronaldinho and Ronaldo and all the other Brazilian greats. And obviously for all the other players winning the world cup again in Brazil, it's, it's everything, right? Winning the world cup is everything. So 
it, it would mean a lot. But I think the Pele stuff is also important to remember in this in this context in this situation. And then there's their opponent, Croatia. Croatia made the final in 2018, and they lost to France. So obviously that that part sucks. But Croatia have never won the tournament before. So obviously winning the World Cup would be amazing. But it would also be the perfect send-off for Luka Modric. Luka Modric has also won everything at club level. And he was the tournament's best player in 2018. But his team lost. And he might be 37 years old now, but Luka Modric is still a tremendous player. And I know that every single player on that Croatian team would just love to win it for him. Because this is a guy that, you know, to win the World Cup, to bring Croatia their first ever World Cup, I mean, it would be absolutely priceless. And so for Croatia, a lot of motivation for that to get it done because, you know, it's who knows when they're going to have a team this good again, right? So. And then we move to the next four teams. So we'll start with England. England haven't won the World Cup since 1966. They haven't even been to the final since 1966. England, their history since the World Cup win has been full of PTSD and trauma, specifically losing in heartbreaking fashion in many, many penalty shootouts and many extra time games and many games where players would do dumb things. See David Beckham's red card. So for England, winning, I think, would kind of expel all the negative, like, all the negative vibes that have been around the national team for decades. And it's something that, obviously, again, winning the World Cup, you know, means everything to those guys, to those players, and, you know, to that coach and to those fans. But more than anything, I think for England, winning the World Cup just finally frees them from the horrible history that they've had for the last several decades. And then we have France. France won the World Cup in 2018. And so for them, it's more about the history, the history of repeating. Only two countries have ever repeated at the World Cup. Italy won in 1934 and 1938. Brazil won in 1958 and 1962. France would be the third country to repeat at the World Cup. It's really rare. It's really hard to do because they're every four years. You, you know, you don't have a World Cup every single year. And by the way, FIFA has a proposal to try and... they they Some of them in FIFA want to do the World Cup every two years. Horrible idea. Please, please, please don't do that. But back to France. So for France, it's more about cementing yourself as potentially one of the greatest national teams of all time. Because if you go back to back, now you start getting into, like, is this maybe the best team we've ever seen type of talk. I don't know if I'd go that far personally, but they're at least in the conversation for sure if they go back to back. And then, of course, for Kylian Mbappe, if he's able to lead this team to win the World Cup and go back to back, I mean, he, in my opinion anyways, he's already a top 15 player if he does that. He already becomes a top 15 player of all time. And that's not me overreacting or over-exaggerating. It's me being honest about the fact that his accomplishments at the World Cup, the biggest football tournament, the biggest sporting tournament in the world, 
I mean, that has to be taken into consideration. That has to be, you know, given its praise and given its props the way it deserves to be given its props. So that's kind of what's on the line for France. And then next we have Portugal. Portugal have never made the final. Portugal have never won the World Cup, obviously. For Portugal, I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, all of the above, it would mean the world to the players, it would mean the world to the fans, they've never won, it would be a really big deal, all of that. Portugal's been one of the more successful countries in, in the history of, you know, football, and they haven't won, so it would be a really big deal. But it would also be a big deal because of, of the Ronaldo thing. Now, if Ronaldo ends up, like, not playing these games and they win, then maybe this turns a little bit differently. But, at least in my opinion, the people that think that Cristiano Ronaldo is the greatest player of all time, I think are wrong. And it's because I think there's a lot of numbers and a lot of different metrics that would point you in other directions than Cristiano Ronaldo's. That's my personal opinion. Now... If Ronaldo, and obviously, you know, he has to play for this to matter, but if Ronaldo is able to be an integral piece in leading Portugal to their first ever World Cup win, the argument doesn't become so crazy anymore, at least to me. But of course, he has to actually play the games for that to matter. But for Portugal, for their team, again, this is just... Portugal, maybe one other time in their history, have had a team this good, and it was probably in 2006... But their team right now is really good. And again, it's one of those, like, you never know where you're going to get a team this good. And you want to be able to take advantage and you want to be able to win the World Cup finally for the first time ever. And then Morocco. I saved Morocco for last because they have the most to gain and the most history to achieve if they do it. No African team has ever made the semifinals. And not a single team outside of Europe or South America have ever made the World Cup final. So, there's a lot that could be, you know, historically speaking, there's a lot that could be gained by Morocco winning the whole thing. And, you know, it would mean so much to not only Moroccans, but it would bring a level of hope if Morocco won the World Cup. It would bring a level of hope to countries in CONCACAF in North and Central America, to countries in Asia, to countries in Africa, that they can win this too. This is not a European and South American trophy. This is the world trophy. And that would be the perfect example of a situation where a country can really rewrite the record books and, more importantly, can give hope to every single nation. Morocco winning the World Cup would give hope to a country like mine, a country like Canada. It would give hope to a country like Japan. It would give hope to a country like Ghana. It would give hope to a country like the United States, like Mexico, that they could do this too. It's not just a European South American trophy. It's a world trophy. And in my opinion, if you're asking me what are the biggest stakes, I think those are the ones. So for Morocco, probably the most to gain out of any of the teams winning the tournament. But of course, every team has a lot to gain. And it would mean, obviously, an insane amount to every single country. Just for different reasons, of course. 
And so, that's all I got for my quarterfinal preview. So, just a little update here on the way that the episodes are going to go for the rest of the tournament. So, on Friday, following the first two quarterfinals, I will have a recap episode. On Saturday, following the second two quarterfinals, I will have a recap episode. On Monday, I will have my semifinal preview. And then, after Tuesday's game, I will have a semifinal recap. After Wednesday's game, I will have a semifinal recap. And then, either Thursday or Friday, I will have a final preview. And then, of course, on Sunday is the World Cup final. I will have a recap episode after the World Cup final on Sunday. So that's the schedule. So you can be on the lookout for that. And make sure you subscribe so you get all of it. But that's all I got. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The World Game, a World Cup podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I will be doing reaction episodes throughout the tournament. The music is from Pixabay. The whole thing gets going on November 20th. So make sure you subscribe and don't miss a moment of the 2022 World Cup.